Green Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Greenleft is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And you are joined by us with myself, Jacob Anjwafa. And me, Zane. How are you going? Yeah, so we're going to be your two um, presenters um, for the program this week. And, yeah, we have quite a good a good program kind of lined up with a number of um, different guest speakers. We're going to be having Sue Bolton, Moreland Councillor Sue Bolton, on the line uh, to talk about um, the recent trend by councils to local councils to privatise its home care, um, a, um, home care, aged care model. And then, um, and then we are, then we're going to be having a discussion with a long-time veteran, um, abortion rights activist about actually the history of the abortion rights campaign, because it's actually been 50 years, uh, since the kind of first sort of, um, first sort of campaign for abortion rights has, has started. And there's actually an article kind of produced in Green Left, um, about that. And the next, and then we'll be entering, um, we'll inter- be entering, ma- um, someone from the Apollo Bay Fishermen's Corp about a proposal from basically multinational companies, um, such as, uh, are basically seeking approval to conduct a massive seismic, um, survey in a massive area of the Ottawa Basin, basically to find more areas to essentially, um, to find more great, more sources of fossil fuels and gas deposits below the ocean floor. So yeah, we'll be having a bit of a discussion about that. Now to get, before we get into, um, the program, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from Wandering Land of the Kulin Nation. I like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land and that sovereignty was never ceded. Okay, so um, the first, I'd like to, um, I'd like to, um, the first kind of, I wanted to sort of start off, I guess, a bit of a kind of new uh, discussion of a, of a, a bit of a, I guess, headline kind of news story. And there has actually been quite a bit of a discussion about uh, superannuation in, in the past um, few weeks. In fact, the Labour Party has actually been talking about sort of some vague, sort of ideas ahead of their job and skills summit expo about about you know how they see the future of superannuation but i guess a more kind of important sort of news story and this is an exclusive that actually appeared in the abc in the past few days but a recent report has suggested that um australians rated 1.6 billion in superannuation savings to pay for healthcare and this is this has been revealed from the past 3 years <clears throat> and in fact this marks a bit of a, a bit of a trend that um australians are actually spending 20 times more of their retirement savings on health costs than a decade ago and then i guess 
um, the the categories of health that have been that have been used for super withdrawals have been dental work, um, stomach surgeries, and IVF, and these are some of the more common kind of uses. And I guess um, one of the kind of other sort of issues is, I mean, we're living in Australia, and actually Australia does have a public health. Um, system and in fact, health professionals have said, you know, people should be able to use their public system and not their own savings. But of course, in terms of the the um, the areas that have been the common use of um, of super in this instance, uh, dental work is actually not covered um, by um, by uh, Medicare. No, and because your teeth are luxury bones that yeah. only fancy people are entitled to. Yeah, yeah. Despite the fact that actually dental health is probably one of the most important sort of areas of health and in fact probably dental work is probably that one area where um dental work is probably the one sort of area where people actually neglect it quite often because Mm. they either don't like going to the dentist but then of course the other issue obviously is dental costs can be very prohibitive um like you know things like root canals and and um Mm. wisdom tooth removal those actually aren't those actually aren't really luxury kind of things, actually. They're actually no, necessary they're to essential. functioning health. Yet um, people um, might, um, because it's not covered under Medicare, you actually would be forced to spend an onward of up to 2000 to $3,000 hmm. on getting that kind of work done alone. The nature of dental as well is it's a bit like servicing your car. You don't want to wait until your engine blows up before you take it to a mechanic and get it serviced. And it's the same with your teeth. It's preventative... Um, Maintenance of your teeth is much better than um, waiting until something goes wrong. So my partner's from Germany. Dental is included in Medicare in Germany. And you need to keep a logbook so that to qualify for free root canal or whatever, you need to be able to demonstrate that you've been going and getting your annual checkup. Um, so, yeah, it's just ludicrous that it's that, that doesn't exist here. And, that yeah, people are raiding their super to spend huge amounts of money on getting their teeth fixed. Hmm. And, um, yeah, Zane, do you have any sort of other sort of thoughts on, you know, um, on the kind of implications of, of this kind of story? The fact that, you know, I mean, this is also taken into account the fact that, you know, many people were withdrew from their super during the pandemic, not just for medical costs, but actually cost of living or um, having extra, extra kind of savings in, in, Belt because, I mean, during the time of the pandemic, it was obviously a lot of things were kind of uncertain. And, of course, one of the sort of early proposals from the government at the time was to let people withdraw from their super early, mm. um, which in a sense actually is going to, in the long run, actually get a weaken um, the super. Not that I think that the superannuation system is some amazing thing that has to be defended, but I think this does raise, I think it does raise some disturbing sort of implications that will disproportionately impact on working class people. Mm. Yeah, I think, well, analysis has shown that a large part of what, of the money that the government spends on the super system is from rich people parking their money in super to pay less tax on it than if it was just regular income that they put in the bank. Um, so the, the super system already kind of benefits, um, rich people anyway as a tax write off. But yeah, increasingly what you're seeing is working class people um, being encouraged to raid their super. Um, the other um, avenue here that, that 
was not really implemented because this was a ScoMo policy and ScoMo was not elected. But another avenue was um, being allowed to raid your super to get a house deposit. So, yeah, that, that, I guess the idea of super is to build up this pool of money for your retirement. As you say, there's an argument that says we should just have properly funded pensions instead of making people save their own money and all the in- inequity and inequality that's entailed in that. But yeah, to then turn around and the longer the super system goes on to start um, Swiss cheesing the thing and white anting it and getting people to access it to spend it on all these other little things, which, by the way, should also be provided as as part of in Medicare in this case, is uh, yeah, it just undermines the whole principle of super. Hmm. And I think probably another, probably another kind of interesting, I, I guess another sort of, Interesting sort of implication with super because I think there is a certain um, utility with there's a basically a certain sense that the system actually in a sense doesn't feel like it's going to be necessarily kind of sustainable in the long term, especially with all these governments actually running it down with all the with allowing people to make sort of early withdrawals etc. Because I guess superannuation and I mean and we can't forget that you know superannuation has always been you know a bit of a neoliberal kind of reform it's it's been basically been an excuse you know not to basically fund a fully funded sort of pension kind of system but I guess one of the other issues when you're looking at superannuation I guess on its own is for a lot of workers who um who are likely to have very sort of generous superannuation um by the by the time they reach retirement life that prospect for a, a lot of you know a lot of young people so even people our sort of at, in your and our sort of age group um which is sort of in the 30s to the 40s and onwards there's actually this element by which you know the the kind of permanent work that would have given you um long term sort of per, um super very good super towards um your Toward, by the time you've reached the time is actually gradually sort of drying up. Hmm. And so, for example, it, it wasn't actually that much of a surprise that probably a lot of young people, when the government, um, when, when the government allowed you to withdraw your super early, actually opted for, for that option because, yeah, hmm. basically a lot of young people are already working very heavily sort of casualized work. It doesn't feel like we're going to have that sort of permanent sort of very well paid sort of job with lots of benefits and generous super on top of that. That doesn't look like it's going to be a thing that we're going to be working in the next 20 years. Mm. In fact, for a lot of um, people these days, it's almost like we're expected to be working different sort of types of jobs over the course of our working life, and none of them are, like, permanent. Um, and I'm sure, Zane, you can sort of relate to that. You know, you've gone from from a sort of per- a permanent construction job, and now you're sort of back on, the, on doing sort of um, trade sort of work. So, yeah. Yeah, well, I've done like little self-employed jobs, and I think that's the real sort of thing here as well. Is there's a lot of this emergence of the gig economy and contractualisation, where jobs that would normally have been regular, casual waged jobs, super attached to them, have now become ABN jobs that people are doing as sole traders or contractors across various industries, and. You have to pay your own super in that situation, but the temptation in a context where we've had declining wages, which also affects people doing sole trade and ABN work, the temptation is to spend money that you would have put aside to your super on your day-to-day cost of living. 
because that's you know that's what the pressure is so yeah 100 percent. there's uh a lot of people in that boat who don't have very much super and thought, oh, well, bugger it. I'm not going to have much super to retire on anyway, so I might as well pull it out. The other X factor here is, of course, climate change, because uh, if you think uh, inflation is bad now, wait until successive floods and droughts and wildfires decimate global food production and decimate the global economy. Like, I'm nudging 40 by the time I'm... You know, in another 25 or 30 years when I'm around retirement age, I don't have hollow hopes for the global economy. I think, uh, you know, I, I probably a lot of people's super funds will be decimated by very serious um, global economic domino effects that stem from climate change. So, yeah, it's all a big mess. But uh, I think a, a system where the economy is kind of collectivized and looks after everyone is preferable to everyone having their own pot of money that they need to put aside for their retirement but yeah well um i think we can we can possibly conclude this sort of discussion and i guess probably one thing to sort of flag um because i because right now i kind of i've been reading there's been some interesting sort of discussions from more the kind of capitalist sort of media, um, i.e. like the Australian Financial Review and the Australian about, uh, about superannuation at the moment. And in fact, Labor has also sort of projected some things, um, about, um, super. But of course, they've been quite vague. In fact, we don't have the kind of full kind of details. So I just want to sort of note that we'll probably flag that this is going to be an important sort of discussion that will be kind of followed up. But now I'll just play, I'll play a quick, um, we'll play a few announcements. You're listening to Green Left Radio, Freesia, 855 AM. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And I, we are very happy to welcome um, Moreland Councillor Sue Bolton, who is on our program today. Probably one of the main the main reasons we have her on on the program today is that there has been a big of a, a bit of a push um, by local councils to privatise their home care kind of services. And I guess, I I'm guess, good morning, Sue. Can you hear us? Hi, how's it going? Hey, Sue. Good. So um, I was just giving a bit of an introduction that, you know, we have you on our program today to actually have a bit of a discussion about, about you know, the attempts by local councils to privatise their home care services. And can you give us, I guess, maybe to start off, 
give us a bit of an overview, I guess, of the situation of home um, of home care service for for local councils, and what is sort of behind this, and what are some of the councils that are how many councils are actually privatising their services? Well, unfortunately, twenty three councils that I'm aware of have privatised their home care services, which is really quite scandalous. Um, And the situation, which is a bit different in Victoria to other states, is that in Victoria, for many years, the local council has run the home care services. And it used to receive block funding from the state government, but then under all the deals between federal, uh, state and federal and state governments and local councils, um, that funding started to be delivered by the federal government with a view to fully privatising, marketising in-home aged care. And um, what the federal government wants to do, and this is bipartisan uh, policy, Liberal Labor, uh, both of them agree with this policy, is that home care switch to a fully market system along the lines of NDIS and um, with, you know, just uh, people having packages and when that fully comes into operation, councils will lose all funding for aged care. So this is a push that's been pushed by the federal government and... uh, but the federal government has kept extending the block funding to councils and in other states, community organisations that provide home care because the whole home care package situation has been such a schmuzzle with massive waiting lists for home care packages. But in Victoria, a number of councils have decided to get out early um, and there's no need to get out early because... Funding has been extended till 2024 and, you know, that does give us a little bit of a reprieve um, for councils to try and fight back and maintain home care. And there are lots of reasons. Um, You might have some questions, but there's lots of reasons why council-run home care is preferable to this being privatised. And the scandal has been that in... Uh, the local council areas of Burundara and Mornington Peninsula, the two main, the two giant home care providers, Mequaware and Bolton Clark, were, did not provide staff to service people. And so thousands of people who'd been receiving home care for a long time from the count, their local councils suddenly stopped receiving any kind of care whatsoever. Um, Sue, just before we continue on with the politics of this, can you just paint, like, give a brief example of what what does this uh, in-home aged care look like? What sort of services would typically be uh, provided by council in this situation? It could be some cleaning. It could involve some personal care of some kind, like assistance with showering or something. It could involve um, assistance with gardening. It could involve shopping Hmm. and maybe a few other things. But it's mainly um, just a bit of 
assistance around the home to keep people in their houses. So it's not um, it's not the same level of care as um, as say um, a disability care might be, um, but. In the whole world of home care packages, which do exist already, sometimes there can be some more advanced levels of home care packages, such as involving physio and other sorts of services as well. Um, and some of the councils that are, privati- that are privatising their home care are saying to councillors, well, we have to. Um, we don't can't provide any more advanced level of care. Therefore, we have to just privatise because at the moment, what the councils provide is um, a sort of very basic level of care, um, more along the lines of, you know, assistance with housework, um, shopping, um, bit of garden maintenance, and you know, sometimes a bit of personal care like showering. Hmm. And that's a benefit not only to the dignity of the people receiving that care, but it also means that people can stay at home potentially for longer and not have to go into a, a like aged care facility with all of the resources and funding that those facilities require. So it seems like something that's of mutual benefit to, to the people receiving that care, but also the public system that pays for a more intensive level of care if people can't continue to live at home. That's right, and and the local councils have a very non-bureaucratic way of delivering the service. So say if you realise you need care or the um, your family realises you need care, home care, then you simply just call the council and usually an assessment happens within just a few days, might even be within a couple of days, and you're in the system. And the local councils know their local community. They know what language groups there are. They know, you know, what proximity you are in relation to other sorts of services. Um, there's just a whole level of knowledge about the local community that you have in the council. Whereas if people pushed into privatised uh, home care packages, like if, if it becomes a full market of home care, then people have to go through a really complicated process with the My Age Care website where there's lots of different layers and the website was so complicated that there's now um, give people aged care navigators to try and navigate the system because it's so complicated. It's not straightforward. And then usually the providers aren't necessarily locally based. So sometimes they don't really know or understand the community and some of them might even be faith-based. So they might even have um, particular prejudices within their systems, around, especially around the queer community. Yeah, and I guess um, the kind of next kind of question I, I want to sort of ask is basically what um, can you tell us um, in in the recent sort of Green Left article that was kind of produced about this? Um, you 
it was said that Moreland Council were the um, you were sort of part of pushing the Moreland Council to retain its um, home its council run home care service. And can you tell us a bit about that? Well, yeah, that's it's something that I've been pushing on for quite a long time myself in Moreland and a council called Gaetano Greco in Darabin Council have both been pushing for councils to retain their home care service. I lost an earlier battle for council to retain um, respite care for parents of kids with disabilities. That got privatised and pushed into the NDIS system. Um, but the, at that stage, the home care service still existed in council. And I've sort of just been pushing with various motions over quite a few years now. I knew that this was going to be privatised, or, or at least that they, there'd be an attempt by the council to privatise, because I knew that this was the federal government's intention, was for a full market, fully marketised system with no um, role by local councils. And the, there was legal advice provided to councils at the time. I think all the councils probably get the same conservative lawyers to advise them. Um, there was legal advice provided that councils, on the basis of competition policy, councils wouldn't be allowed to use any of their rates money to um, uh, fund home care. Um, I think that is bollocks. I think that's just been used to intimidate councils or councillors to vote to privatise the service. But it does mean... But there will be a chance... It's still not perfect. So both in Moreland, through me, and in Darabin, through Gaetano Greco, both councils have voted to become home care package providers because it is the only way that Moreland or Darabin can continue to maintain a council-run home care service and keep um, its workers together to provide excellent quality home care. Um, But it will be different in the future when and if the federal government finally chops all block funding to councils for providing the service because in the future it will be a fully marketised service. And that's why we need the new federal government to pull back from this and guarantee block funding into the future. And it is really important because the private companies that provide this this, um, service, they have fully casualised workforces. The workers earn something like $10 an hour less, like a third less than council workers. They've got much worse conditions in terms of OHNS and there's no requirement in the private providers to um, have good qualifications. So all the council home care workers all have Certificate 3 qualification, which is not the case in the private sector. And the continuity of care through having the same worker come in to provide care every week is really important because um, elderly people build up a rapport with their worker and it becomes more than just a carer. And Whereas if it's a um, privatised service, then it means there might be a different carer every, work, every week 
and elderly people have to describe what they need to be done every week to a different carer. And then just as that carer learns how to do whatever is needed in the way that the elderly people want to be done, then some a new person um, will take over the caring role. So it's sort of that there's no continuity of care. And this is an issue with NDIS providers as well as with private home care package providers. So Moreland and Darabin have both voted to stay in and um, continue to provide council-run home care, but it will be different in the future unless we can win a battle for the federal government to pull back some fully marketised systems. Yeah, I think it's a problem as well. Like this is, sounds very similar to what's happened with uh, the TAFE system, where existing TAFEs had to become RTOs and then compete for students. And the problem with that is you get your slash and burn, churn and burn private providers who, on the face of it, may be a private provider because they're paying um, their workers less. They can provide... I don't know, eight visits per month, whereas council would only provide six or whatever those numbers are. So on the face of it, it looks like this private provider provides a better service, but once that service starts happening, it becomes clear that, no, it's nothing where near the, the level of quality of care that you used to be getting off council. But once council has lost a bunch of its clientele or residents or whatever word you want to use, people who would normally access that council aged care, once they've gone over to private providers and council has lost that funding, it's then hard to bring people back and build that funding back up and build staffing levels back up within that council aged care service. So, yeah, if if the step is taken over the edge, it would be very hard to, to recover from that. You're exactly right. And I think once I realised that NDIS was going to be provided along the same model of um, what happened to TAFEs with this registered training organisation system, well, fully marketised system, um, I realised that this would be a way of gutting any kind of public services in the disability area. And that's what, that is what's happened. Um, and... In home care, it will be the same situation. And the more councils that privatise, the less hope we have of winning a campaign against for the government to stop this marketisation push. Um, so we, we need councils to stay in the system and not get out and privatise their services. Um, not scab. <laughs> Don't scab. That's right. That's right, especially given that the government has guaranteed funding till 2024. Councils should be sticking with their services and their staff and um, continuing to provide their service um, as long as they can, and um, which may then mean becoming a home care package provider as well in the future. But we need to keep using this block funding from the state from the federal government to provide the current excellent standard of care for um, elderly people. Mm. Yeah, and maybe to... Oh, sorry. Maybe to conclude this interview, um, Sue, um, if you could give us any final kind of comments, also turn the speakerphone off.
Oh, speakerphone's not on. <laughs> Sorry. Well, why am I echoing um, then? Yeah, don't know why. Um, but I think the key thing here is that all, all of these privatisation schemes came out of the Productivity Commission, which is something that people have, don't really talk about very much. It's a shadowy organisation that's been used by Liberal and Labor government, federal governments over the years to provide the justification for privatisation and so-called competition to privatise uh, as a justification for privatising various services. So we've got all of these competing models, whether it be job agencies, NDIS providers, um, competing registered training organisations, which include the um, our public taste. And this... Um, all of these systems have been designed by the Productivity Commission and it's a similar thing that's what's happening to in the, uh, in Britain as well. And in fact, Australia is following a lot of what Britain has done before it, where Britain has used this model, what's a sort of um, sometimes called a voucher system where the money is, you know, there's all these, fan- these fancy words to uh, say how great it is that the money goes to the individual client in today's speak um, and for them to choose which provider would be best. But what it has meant is the gutting and destruction of public systems for a much, much worse service. And, uh, and these various private providers just become bigger and bigger and gobble each other up. And really the person who's receiving the care ends up having very little power whatsoever to get a decent service. And and public money that would have wholly been spent on providing that service is now being siphoned into private profits for the shareholders that's of these private right. providers. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's like privatised aged care. And, you know, this is something which has gone right through the system um, with more and more community services or council and services being pushed into this model. And, yeah, these are all, um, you know, this is all public money, our money, but it's being removed from public services. It's being used to provide, to pay, you know, private, mostly private providers of various services. And, you know, this is what they put. The home care um, service hasn't been fully privatised yet, but um, this is, and this is how state uh, and federal governments and local councils work together, so that the federal government, and in some cases it might be state, but in this case the federal government is using the withholding of money to try and force other levels of government to uh, privatise their services. And really, councils should have been fighting back all of this time. They shouldn't have been just submissively waiting to see when the government would turn off the funding. They should have been fighting back, and they haven't been fighting back. And in fact, they've been um, complicit in the system, and that's really because all the CEOs, really, regardless of what their personal beliefs are, they you know they have to follow the unwritten. Uh, Jo- um, job criteria of being ne- for neoliberals, 
And so all of the councils are given the same advice, which is privatise. And it's very rare that you find a councillor who will challenge that. But in the case of Moreland, I've sort of challenged that over a number of years with various motions and have eventually got to the point where I was able to win um, win a motion for council to continue providing the service. Um, but as you say, once it's fully marketised, it will be different and difficult. We've probably got to wrap up, but just quickly as well, what about uh, workers and the, the relevant union, which I'm... I'm assuming is the ASU. Has there been a push the, from the union? It is the ASU. Yeah. Yeah, the ASU is campaigning against um, against the privatisation of aged care. Okay. And um, they also realise that once the funding switched off, the only way of keeping the workers together and a council-run service is by councils becoming home care package providers themselves. So they're supportive of what I've done in Moreland. Um because they also know that their workers will get a much better pay rate, they might get much better looked after, um, and they also know that those workers provide really great standard of care. So I've been working with the ASU in pushing this in Moreland. Yeah, nice. All right. Well, thank you very much, um, Sue. I think this has been a very important kind of discussion, and I think, yeah, we should definitely keep um, following any sort of developments in terms of campaigning against um, this kind of outrageous privatisation of in-home care um, run by um, run by councils. So, yeah, thank you very much again, Sue. Yeah, cheers. Thanks very much. Yep, thanks. The ever-staunch Sue Bolton from uh, Moreland Council there talking about the marketisation and privatisation of in-home aged care services provided by local government across Victoria. Right. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855am. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have, And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. Hey, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And now, just to give you a bit of a, a kind of positive news story um, that's coming from the pages of Green Left, but this is basically a victory that, um, from um, for, for the climate movement, but basically a proposal around a coal mine, uh, a coal expansion under, um, by... D- Dendrobarium has been halted. Um, oh, good. And essentially, 
Australian mining company South 32 um, announced on August 23 that it would it would it will not extend the Jedrum um, coal mine under Sydney's drinking water catchment. And I think f- reading from um, from Green um, from the Green Left article titled he- um, here, apart from threatening drinking water in Sydney and the Illawarra, the controversial mining e- mine expansion threatened cultural heritage sites and unique upland swamp ecosystems. It would have also increased greenhouse gas emissions. The company told the the stock exchange it would no longer pursue the expansion because the expected profit was not high enough to justify the investment. And, of course, Nick Clyde um, from Lock the Gate told Greenleft he is dubious about that as coal prices are high. He and Clyde actually argues that, you know, it was a persistent and sustained and dedicated community campaign had brought a lot of scrutiny to the proposed expansion. Opposition also came from, had also come from Water, Water New South Wales, Federal Science, ex, scientific experts and in, in, institutional investors. In the end, it was a bit of a house of cards and, and it's fallen over. And of course, the other note was South um, 32's original application was um, rejected by the New South Wales Independent Planning Commission last year, even though it was supported by the New South Wales um, coalition government. The IPC said the dangerous environmental impacts, including on drinking water, would be long-term and irreversible and that it was not in the public interest. The government responded by giving a revised plan, state-significant um, infrastructure status. And Clyde said um, that South um, 32 is the only coal company in the history of New South Wales to have a um, coal mining project declared a state-significant um, infrastructure project. And I think, you know, this, yeah, so go... Conclude, to com- basically conclude, I think this is quite, I guess, a kind of posit- a very sort of positive news story. It actually does show um, that you know community campaigns, um, and if we and if we organise that, we can actually halt some of these um, these expansions. So I think it yeah, does definitely kind of shows the, the importance of that. Yeah, Zane, do you sort of have any comments on the story? I do indeed. So I've I've been I, I grew up in Newcastle and I've been campaigning against coal mines and mine expansions for some time. Underground coal mining, the way it works is there's these things called self-advancing hydraulic jacks, which are a very useful safety development. What they are is these big hydraulic metal arms that are in a big long row and they kind of push up against the roof of the coal mine. You have this image in your mind of these old-fashioned coal mines where there's, you know, pillar and board. You have these wooden props holding the top of the roof of the coal mine up so that it doesn't all fall in and collapse and kill all the workers. Um, The modern way of doing that is these actual mechanical things that are pushing up against the roof and then they slowly move forward in a line and that might be as wide as a football field and there's a thing going along like munching on a corn cob, biting all of the coal out of the coal seam, sending it on a conveyor belt back up to the surface and as this whole thing moves forward it lets the the ground behind it safely kind of collapse. Now, what that means is that that layer of rock collapses down and the coal seam could be three or four metres high and then the layer above that collapses and the layer above that collapses and then eventually you've got this coal mine that might be a couple hundred metres under the ground 
but there are cracks forming behind where it is ripped this giant volume of coal out of the ground, and those cracks find their way up to the surface. And in this case, this dendrobium mine, it's under a drinking water dam that supplies something like 20% of Sydney's drinking water. This is absolutely ridiculous. And Water New South Wales, the water utility, even said so. Do not put coal mines underwater supplying dams. This is lunacy. Do not do it. So this is a victory for common sense. And to their great shame, I will say, the CFMEU supported this. Like, the CFMEU does fight for improved wages and conditions, including in the mining sector, the mining and energy division, but consistently over the years and the decades. It doesn't really matter how bad the climate crisis gets. Generally, the mining and energy division of the CFMAU, in terms of the question of climate change and new mines and mine expansions, it might as well be the SDA or the AWU. It automatically supports every new coal mine proposal, including one that would damage Sydney's drinking water supply. So it's not a good look for the CFMAU. They're coming out and they're all upset that this mine has been, you know, abandoned or refused or turned back. Well, they should not be. This is a very important victory for common sense because that mine is just... There shouldn't be any new coal mines, but especially under a bloody drinking water dam. Hmm. All right. Well, um, thanks for that, Zane. Um, I've just got to go quickly. We'll go play a quick announcement because we are due to be having our second interview for the program this week. Um, so, yeah, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. 20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside. I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcasts. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. Well, all the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app. All right, you are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And we're very happy to be interviewing, um, to have Lynn Moore on our program today. Lynn Moore has been, is, is actually from the Woman Abortion Action Campaign, um, which was, which was an act, um, which was an abortion rights, um, collective that was, um, founded in Sydney in, um, 1972. And in fact, their group is actually being recently, is having 
having a bit of a reflection, I guess, on the 50 years of activism from um, women's rights activists on abortion rights. So, good morning, Lynn. Hello. So, good morning, Lynn. Um, I guess I'll, I'll, I guess to kind of start off, I guess, the discussion um, for our listeners, what can you tell us, I guess, about some of the history um, with the Women Abortion Action Campaign, which launched back in 1972 when abortion was considered illegal? And, of course, we've obviously come a long way since then. But I guess, mm-hmm. what are some of the, what were, I guess, some of the kind of issues back then? Well, we, um, some uh, activists, uh, we called ourselves women's livers in those days. Um, we, uh, somebody called a meeting at Sydney University and um, I heard about it, so I went along. And um, it was back in the days of um, Butcher's Paper. So um, they just we were in a room. We just put butcher's papers all around the room, and we just put a heading on all the issues that were facing women at the time. Um, abortion was one of them. Um, rape, uh, the rape crisis situation was another one. Equal pay, um, political representation, all those sorts of things um, came to mind, and. The people who were there were invited then to put their names under which um, which activity, what was important to them, and I decided that I would join with the abortion group. Um, for me personally, I figured that I could. I was. I had a little plan in mind for myself, um, and that would have been interrupted if I had a, had an unwanted pregnancy. And also, um, it was difficult. It was illegal to have an abortion in those days. So for pretty much any reason at all, unless you could afford it or you had a good doctor um, who might put it under a different heading, etc. So that was the beginning of women's liberation. And out of that came a lot of groups, the rape crisis group, the uh, uh, women's um, health centres, the Women's Electoral Lobby, um, a lot of groups uh, that are, some of them are still in operation. Um, they came out of that particular meeting. So I think that, yeah, so um, for me, um, abortion was illegal and uh, <clears throat> people could face 10 years imprisonment in those days. Um, obviously, we had the... Um, the backyard abortions, as we called them. Women could die horrible deaths. Um, it was important that we started to take some action to get the laws changed. And I um, guess going back, um, to, what do you, I guess, tell us, I guess, about, I mean, some of the um, the activities, I guess, that the Women's Abortion Action Campaign um, were involved in, like, you know, because um, in the article that's been printed in Green Left, they, there's a bit, of a, a bit of a kind of interesting kind of overview of the, some of the activities that um, women's, the Women's Abortion Action Campaign was involved in. I guess maybe even some reflections on some of the turning points, some of the, the highlights from the years of kind of campaigning. Well, we had um, the International Women's Day. Um, I can't remember the first year that that came around, but um, those marches still go on around March the 8th every year. Um, 
some of those marches down when uh, the women's abortion action campaign's banners uh, um, would be leading the marches. We would have four or five thousand people out on the streets then uh, supporting us as well. Um, and um, all the, oh, there'd be union groups, <clears throat> there'd be a lot of other um, women's liberation groups in those days. And um, we would have some really big marches um, every year around that day. Um, but we also supported other groups that might be um, um, political groups, like women's, women's electoral lobby, um, all of those sorts of groups over the years. Any time that there's been anything organised, um, WAC, as we call ourselves, Women's Abortion Action Campaign, WAC and um, our banners and our supporters would be out uh, supporting other groups. Um, we've had we've had um, uh, exhibitions of our work. Uh, I think around 2005, um, we've had we had a a, we, a a week where we hired a room and we had um, information like a, a timeline of the things that we'd been doing since 1972. Um, that was quite well attended over the week. Um, there's been um, various books. We've launched uh, the a book called Lost, which is a book about the Victorian abortion rights campaign and Bertram Weiner. Uh, that was, uh, um, I think that was early 2000s as well. Um, and... Um, uh, yes, I think that's about all that I can think of there. All the protests um, reclaiming the night uh, for the uh, rape crisis, supporting the rape crisis people. Anything. We were often out on the streets. Back in the 70s, uh, there were a lot of demonstrations going on for all sorts of reasons. Mm. And Zane, did you have a question you wanted to sort of quickly ask? Well, <coughs> Oh, Lynn, I'd just be interested in your thoughts on this recent wave of protests against this uh, disgusting Supreme Court ruling in the US. I'm sure you would have had mixed feelings. On the one hand, it's great to see a new generation of of young um, activists, women in particular, but people of, of all genders pushing for um, abortion rights. But it's, it must be very disheartening, too, to see what's happening in the US and that, you know, this... <coughs> Why are we yeah. still having this fight 50 years on? Yes, yeah. Well, we, in having, having um, a couple of years ago, we had the um, abortion taken out of the Crimes Act in, uh, in New South Wales. I think it's legal in all states. I think it's still only Western Australia that might have it in the Crimes Act. And uh, we also... Um, uh, the um, exclusion zones around our clinics were were have been implemented. I think that might be in those states, so that protesters can't harass people going into the uh, into the facility clinics. Um, they have to stay back 150 metres, and so that's been a really good thing to have in. It, the timing of that has been fantastic, considering what's happened in in America. Um, we we have to be ever vigilant here because there are always going to be people who are going to take those rights away from us. Um, and we're in 
solidarity with the women in... Um, we actually... WAC actually has um, a banner that says uh, solidarity with women in the USA from way back in the times when Ro- uh, uh, Roe vs. Wade was actually um, passed. They... Oh, I can't remember the, the states, but there's a state that passed uh, fetal personhood uh, laws and a woman who was about five months pregnant uh, fell down some stairs and she was subsequently arrested uh, for um, because she miscarried. She broke some bones in her own body, of course, um, and she miscarried. And she subsequently uh, got a two-year uh, jail sentence because she had been she had miscarried. And somebody had mentioned to the police that she had said, I'll be so pleased when I'm not pregnant anymore. And I think that every woman around five months, from five months on, might say that at least once a week. Hmm. Um, But mischief makers are there, and um, we we are just so sorry um, for the situation in America. We're doing what we can, um, but um, it's... They'll just have to sort it out for themselves. We can only hope that they'll vote in the next elections, and uh, and they'll get they'll put in some more progressive um, political representatives. Mm-hmm. And I guess I want to go. Um, I guess um, for this kind of next question, I want to kind of hear about what are, what are some of the more because um I for the women's um, um abortion action group. Um, or women's abortion campaign group. Um, you, you've obviously a lot of the peak of your, a, a lot of your kind of activism was obviously probably in the sort of, you know, the, around the sort of 70s to the sort of 80s moment, moment that was when the, we had sort of massive sort of protests. But of course, over the time, you know, um, one of the sort of things I have to give credit your is that, you know, your organisation has kind of endured and has been kind of like part of, I guess, a lot of kind of recent activities. And can you tell us about some of the kind of more contemporary sort of activities that your group has been involved in the past decade? And also, you know, what are some of the issues around... Because we've obviously come a long way um, in terms of abortion, like abortion is not considered legal anymore, but obviously there is still issues, um, you know, regarding um, abortion access and so on. I guess I want to hear from, you know, what are still some of the issues that um, still face abortion rights today in the Australian context? Um, well, access is always going to be a problem. Um, it's always been that, um, that um, well-off people, people who have uh, means, can access an abortion. Um, it may be... Uh, so, um, for regional people, for regional women, accessing abortion has always been difficult. Um, the abortion itself can be expensive, hundreds of dollars, maybe more, a uh, thousand. If you have to come in from the country, you have to, um, you might have to have accommodation to stay overnight. If it's surgical, if it's um, medical, it's not quite so serious, but you still have to have um, uh, some facility to go to if it doesn't work for you. We were recently sad to find the um, 
Murray Stokes uh, International Clinic in Newcastle closed. That was um, partly due to... Um, uh, it was mostly down to finance because uh, obviously there are, are women needing to access their services. And it's not only abortion that these that these clinics provide uh, information on or provide services. So it's um, <clears throat> anything pretty much to do with reproductive health. Um, and um, funding, uh, federal funding, um, it would be really good to uh, have more support through Medicare. So... Um, it's always going to be a problem for, for regional women to access, but um, we're really pleased that, uh, and that we're really pleased that uh, younger women are taking up the baton for us. Um, and the oh, so sorry, that's a, a an alarm going off in my phone. I forgot to cancel. Um, yeah, so we the young women are taking up the. Um, the, the messages now, and I think that they will be more vigilant over the over the next few years. America has taught them that. Um, so, was there anything more that uh, that you might want me to speak about? Uh, yeah, I'm just um, reading that there is a um, commemorative meeting coming up on September three. Would you be able to tell people how to how they can check that out? Oh, yes. Uh, we're having our 50th anniversary because it was August 1972 when we started. Um, and uh, we'll be, if you, if people want to get more information, if they go to the Women's Abortion Action Campaign website, they'll see the, uh, the program there. Um, and we, we're planning a, a video, uh, some video into, um, uh, interviews that we've had with important people to us over the years, um, uh, recapping of the 70s, 80s and 90s. Um, we're hoping to have a very large cake, birthday cake, <laughs> and then we'll be talking about um, what's happening in the 2000s and, and to current. Um, we've got um, uh, Penny Sharp, will be one of the speakers. She's an MLC of, uh, in New South Wales. Very, very fabulous long-term supporter of all women's issues um, and uh, some other, other people as well. So uh, everybody's welcome to come along. So it's 2 o'clock, 2 p.m. Um, and it's... Uh, I've just forgotten the um, the address, but... All the details are on the um, website uh, on the 3rd of September. Yeah, brilliant. That'll be lovely to see everybody there. Mm. Oh, and we'll be zooming in some of the older members uh, who... Oh, younger members too who can't join us. So there will be a Zoom meeting set in Zoom. Uh, three, uh, two Zoom links will be set up uh, over the afternoon. Mm. 
Well, that sounds great. Well, thank you um, very much, Lynn. I think this has been a very, yeah, I think this has been a very good sort of interview. And it's always um, great, you know, to hear from, you know, people who have been involved in activism for, um, for the, for, for a better part of decade. In fact, you've been involved longer than both of us actually have been. So I think, you know, I'm getting, I'm getting that sort of um, sense of rich history of the women's rights Mm -hmm. movement, especially the abortion rights movement, I think was very good. So yeah, thank you very much, Lynn. Yeah, much respect. Um, you're most welcome. Lovely to chat. All right. Uh, yes, uh, Lynn Muir there from the Women's Abortion Action Campaign, talking about 50 years of fighting for women's bodily autonomy and for men to stop dictating what women do with their own bodies, which is an ever-important question. And uh, as Lynn mentioned Access to affordable uh, abortion is still an ongoing uh, struggle that, that needs to be won. So, yeah, check that out. We'll post a link, actually, on the uh, Green Left Facebook page, or if you go to greenleft.org.au, there is an article about 50 years of the uh, abortion action campaign, and that's got a link to that uh, that meeting that's happening on September 3 that Lynn was just talking about there. All right. Well, thank you, Grant. All right, we'll just go play a quick announcement. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. I really am not understanding why people aren't seeing the fact that prisons are an integral part of a public health response to a pandemic. Like you, I'm really concerned about whether the data is being released very honestly about illnesses within prison. I have suspicions it's not, but really we need very strong leadership in this country that actually cares about people inside, our most vulnerable populations inside. That's what we need and that's not what we're getting right now. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. And now it is time for the Green Left Activist Calendar. Now, the first event I want to highlight is um, there's apparently going to be a protest today um, in solidarity with sacked ANSIL workers in Sri Lanka, and that's going to be happening at 12 p.m. 678 Victoria Street in Richmond. And that's um, that's happening today, 12 p.m., um, 678 Victoria Street in Rich- um, Richmond. Then the next kind of event to highlight is Green Left is um, all, um, hosting a fundraiser today. Um, it's a film screening of the documentary The Prison in 12 Landscapes, which is going to be happening at 6.30 p.m. at the MUA office, 46 Island Street, West Melbourne. And the film starts at 7pm with dinner and food provided from 6.30. the Nick, um, the the next event is there's actually going to be also a f- another fundraiser. Um, the Boyt presents free songs for free CR. That's going to be happening tonight at 7:30 p.m. at One Mark Street, North Fitzroy. And then on Thursday, September the first, there's going to be a protest. Permanent visas now at 12 noon at the Andrew Giles office, shop 23 to 25, the Stables Shopping Centre. 314 to 360 um, Childs Road in Mill Park. 
Then another um, event um, that we're going to highlight is there's going to be a Rahu campaign launch. The rent is too high. Rahu stands for the renters and um, renters and housing union. Union. Yeah. The renter, renters and housing union, and that they, they yeah they're basically going to be launching um, their a campaign ahead of the state election that's going to be happening in twenty in, in November, um, basically around the whole issue around rent. And so that's going to be happening at five thirty p.m. at the Shreds Hall, fifty four Victoria Street in Carlton. South. And then on Wednesday, September the 7th, there's going to be action, shut down the early childcare centre. Um, don't have any sort of relevant sort of details for that yet, but I know there's going to be a big on walkout of childcare workers on Wednesday, uh, September the 7th. So yeah, we'll go, we'll have to, you'll have to look on the Big Steps Australia website to sort of get the details of the, of the rallies. I'm pretty sure there will be a rally, but yeah, that, those sort of details just haven't been sort of finalized yet and we'll definitely hopefully give you the final details um for the for the for the rally point um on next friday but yeah and especially and if also if you're an early childcare worker and you're listening to this i mean yeah definitely worth getting in touch with your union united workers union about how you could potentially participate in this um walkout on Sunday, um, September 11, there's going to be a fundraiser, West Papuan Lunch and Auction, and that's going to be happening at one person, in person and online at 838 Collins Street in the Docklands. And then some other events, and if you're in regional, um, regional Victoria is tonight, there's actually, if you happen to be in Geelong and not Melbourne, there is actually going to be another Green Left Fund um, film screening of the documentary Abortion, Corruption and Cops, The Bertram Wayner Story. And that's going to be happening at 6.30pm at the Lower Hall, Shreds Hall, um, 127 Myers Street in Geelong. Okay, well, that's... um. That that um that's um all from the from the Green Left Actors calendar. I'll go play. I guess I'll play um some announcements um and then we'll go on to our next interview for the program. You are listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR eight five five AM. We jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we got the hell. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. I think 3CR is the voice of the people, speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think, and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio on 3CR 855 AM. And we're very happy to have Marcus Noel, um, 
who is from the Apollo Bay Fishermen's Corp. And he is part of a, of a campaign, I guess, opposing, um, the proposal from multinational uh, companies to, who are seeking approval to conduct a 3D seismic survey in a massive area of the Otway Basin, um, Otway Basin, which is offshore from Tasmania, South Australia and Victoria in order to locate fossil fuel, um, fossil gas deposits below the ocean floor. So yeah, good morning, Marcus. Oh, good morning, Marcus. Sorry, I just forgot to press the um, button so I didn't get to hear you. So, good morning, Marcus. Good morning. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. So, what can you, can you give us, I guess, a bit of an overview of this kind of proposal that's coming from these multinational companies um, who are basically wanting to do a big sort of um, seismic survey of, uh, of in the Ottawa Basin? Yeah, well, I guess, first of all, um, it's worth noting just how large this is. This is a huge um, proposal probably the biggest one we've ever seen in this area. So um, what it is, it's over 7.7 million hectares. So just for uh, comparison, it's like basically the whole, the size of the whole of Tasmania. Uh, now, for listeners who aren't necessarily aware of what seismic testing is, it's a little bit like, uh, imagine a tractor in a field towing a massive big plough and you're going backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards and it's like you're ploughing that great big field. So that's a little bit like what's happening with seismic testing. You've got a large vessel, you've got a huge array of seismic air guns trailing away from the back of the vessel and they basically go up and down and backwards and forwards across the test area blasting these seismic guns that go off about every 10 seconds and they do it 24 hours a day seven days a week for literally months on end. Yeah, how long does it take to plough an area the size of Tasmania? Uh, so it'll, it'll depend on things like the, um, the sea conditions and all the rest of it, but quite literally uh, you could expect something like that to go on for two, three or even more months. Yeah. Right. And what can you tell us about the kind of potential sort of environmental impacts of this of this seismic um, um, survey? That's really one of the big concerns because um, what we've got is uh, an emerging body of knowledge about the damage that that is done by seismic surveys. Um, you've got to appreciate that the what, what's happening is that these seismic air guns release huge pulses of shock waves that are strong enough to go down through the water column eight kilometres into the bedrock below the sea floor and then bounce off any oil and gas deposits and come all the way back up to the cedars that have been towed behind the air gun array. So we're talking massively powerful shockwaves that pulse through the water. Now, the petroleum industry, a little bit like the tobacco industry, actually, for, for a long time has claimed that, that, you know, that this is a benign activity. Uh, we're now learning more that it isn't. So, for example... As that shockwave pulses through the water column, we now know that it kills all the uh, the plankton, the zooplankton, which is in the water column. And that plankton is really the, the bedrock of the whole food chain. And in this area, which is right along the edge of the continental shelf, it's a really sensitive, important area, uh, which is in, in, which is a part of sort of a, an annual cycle of nourishment for all the um, areas along the coast. But there's a an event called the Bonnie Upwelling each year where we get nutrient-fresh waters flush up over the continental shelf. So 
while they're doing all this seismic testing, they're actually damaging uh, animals and eggs in the water column, but it also damages what's on the sea floor. So scallops, for example, don't get killed straight away, but three months later will likely be dead. And other critters like rock lobsters actually get their sense organs damaged. So it's almost like little hairs inside their ears. They get broken, and so they, they, they lose their balance control. So there is damage being done, and unfortunately, we don't. Where our regulatory framework doesn't obligate the petroleum industry to recognise that, and so therefore they're basically allowed free reigns to go and do what they want. Hmm. That gets into the kind of next question because I guess in your kind of press release, it, um, it was sort of noted that Scumberger and TGS, which are the sort of main multinational, um, which are the multinationals who are pushing this, um, you know, they've essentially kind of bypassed sort of any sort of real process and of course there's been they've basically been able to get away with having this approved with very much minimal consultation with uh, affected communities including the traditional owners Um, so yeah and also the broader community who is impacted by this so can you tell us a bit about that that aspect yeah look the trouble is that this is a really really complicated space uh, and, and, and probably deliberately made that way so what normally happens with this sort of exploration is each year the regulatory authority, which in this case is NOPSEMA, uh, which stands for National Offshore Petroleum Safety and Environmental Management Authority, uh, they are the ones who, are, who, who ultimately provide the approvals for this sort of thing. Uh, but this process for this particular one has almost bypassed the normal process. So it's not getting the same level of transparency and scrutiny that we would normally expect to have with these sorts of things. And the problem is, is that the in this case, the petroleum industry is largely self-regulating in this environment. So in other words, what that means is they decide who, who the important stakeholders are. They decide what consultation looks like. They decide what risks they're going to address and they decide what they're going to do about it. By comparison, if we look at us, say, commercial fishers operating in the same environment, we're very heavily regulated. So everything we do, uh, we have to be very uh, cautious. So we have to abide by a thing called the precautionary principle, um, which means in the lack of uh, scientific certainty, you, you act in a cautious manner. The petroleum industry does not. So at every step of the, of the way, the petroleum industry is getting away with stuff. They're able to operate behind closed doors. They largely self regulate and they are the ones who get to decide who they need to consult with. So the entire regulatory framework is flawed, it's biased towards the petroleum industry and and your average Australian largely doesn't know anything about it. Hmm. And what can you tell us, can you tell us a bit about the community sort of campaign that is kind of developing, I guess, in response to uh, opposing this seismic survey? Yeah, it's, in, it's interesting because obviously these sorts of seismic surveys have been going on for, for decades, um, but as I say, it's, it's largely been out of sight and out of mind. I think in recent times, there's an emerging awareness of what's actually going on out there, and people are starting to realise the impacts that this sort of activity is having, and understandably, they're not very happy about it. So we're seeing more diverse groups becoming uh, involved in this process. Fishermen have been uh, concerned about this for a very, very long time, but now we're seeing more community-based groups who have got a range of concerns, which are not just about the impact to the uh, fishing stocks and the marine environment, 
but the potential flow-on impact. Um, you probably remember recently, in recent times, there was a big community-led campaign called Fight the Bike, uh, which ultimately led to the uh, a, a, a Norwegian company called Equinor uh, deciding not to do to go drilling in the in the bike. And one of the reasons for that was because of the potential damage uh, that could occur if something goes wrong. Um, so, so, and those impacts can lead to, you know, other tourism-related impacts and other environmental damage. So, so there's a, an emerging awareness and more groups getting involved because, quite rightly, um, this is a very high-risk activity, uh, and the and the impacts are very wide. And what um, can you um, can you also I guess going to the sort of we're getting into sort of some of the um, the conclusion I guess of the interview can you ca- I guess tell us about I guess some of the I mean get guess can you tell us about some of the what are the kind of demands that you're kind of putting to around the state government around this around this survey but also what is the sort of campaign going to be pushing for in that area is there like a petition that someone um that you know people outside the ottoman otway areas can um can sign um and yeah basically yeah or more Polo Bay, actually because i imagine that's where the sort of campaign is sort of developing like is there sort of like a way of like you know, the broader community, you know, outside there can also show support. Yeah, so, so we've got a local group uh, here called Ocean, uh, and they, they, have, they have broad concerns about um, protecting our oceanic environment. And what we're looking at doing is, is building partnerships between, between other parties who, who can be concerned. So at the moment, there's not, a, there's not a petition per se. The focus of the uh, campaign at the moment is really around awareness, because we're of the view that the more that people understand what's actually happening at the moment with the system, everyone will have different views on, on what concerns them. So, for example, uh, fishing, fishing and the environment aside, if we, take, if we take a step back and say, well, hang on, how does this reconcile with the Labor Party, you know, Federal Labor Party's new policy ambitions about net zero in 2050? The fact of the matter is, with, this, with our oil and gas reserves, by the government's own reckoning, we've got an existing 40-plus year supply of gas, which would meet all of our needs for the next 40 years in terms of what we already know is there. So why are we going and damaging the environment looking for more reserves when we've already got 40... And 40 years is you know, a decade beyond net zero, mind you. And then the other thing is, what are Australians getting for it? This, these once-off resources, you can only suck them out of the ground and sell them once, what, what benefit does it deliver for Australians? In Norway, for example, they've got a 78% tax on, on fossil fuel resources and they've built the biggest sovereign wealth fund in the world on the back of that. So even though they've done, once they've done their fossil fuels extraction, as a community and future generations will benefit from that sovereign wealth fund. In Australia, we've blown it. Basically, the multinational companies are coming in, they're sucking all the gas out, 90% of our energy resources are being exported and Australians are getting nothing for it. So every which way you look at this, it damages the environment. We don't even need it in the first place. And if we are going to do it, we're not even getting any intergenerational benefit from it. You've really got to question why, why on earth is any of this happening? So in the end, it's got to stop. We've just got to work out how to make our voices heard and help make that happen. For the earth. All right. Well, thank you very much, Marcus. Um, th- I think that was sort of a good way to kind of conclude the kind of interview. And, um, yeah, I'd like to um, thank you for being on our program. And we'll, we'll definitely, 
or we definitely have all the solidarity towards your your campaign and your and your fight. I, I think yeah, it's completely outrageous. I think what is happening here, and I think yeah, we'll definitely be following kind of any developments on as, as this kind of unfolds. So yeah, thank you very much, Marcus, for being on our program. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Keep it staunch. Thank you. So, yes, Marcus Nola there from um, the Apollo Bay Fishermen's Co-op. And Marcus also mentioned Ocean, um, which is a coalition of uh, community organisations and Indigenous organisations uh, in the Otway Basin fighting against this uh, industrial-scale seismic testing. I was just reading a link at Friends of the Earth, and it's talking about the... The, the loudness, those blasts are 256 decibels. Anything above about 100 decibels is, is da- damaging to human hearing and, and can create, um, you know, permanent hearing damage. Well, I think if you were anywhere near a 256 decibel blast, it's safe to say it would burst your eardrums, and that's exactly what it's doing to all the marine life. There's whales um, migrating through that area. It's, it's, it's just it's obscene. It's disgusting that this is happening. So, yeah, keep an eye out. That that's uh, that community down there on the Great Ocean Road. That's a that's a long way out of the city, and I know that communities like that can sometimes feel a bit uh, voiceless. So, if there's opportunities arising, it'd be great if uh, some people from across uh, Melbourne can uh, support that campaign in any way possible. All right. Um, well, I thought I'd um, do something a bit different for... We're getting to sort of the end of our program. We sort of have like six minutes left. So I was just going to spend the next three minutes... Maybe we can just play a bit of a song, actually. I was going to play Don't Look At Me Like That by Ballpark Music, and then we can sort of say our goodbyes um, and conclude the program there. So, yeah, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855M, and you're go- I'm going to be playing Don't Look At Me Like That by Ballpark Music. No. Yeah. 
All right, you're just listening to Don't Look At Me Like That by Ballpark Music. And now we're getting um, to the end of our program. I would like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week. Um, I'd like to thank all our guests for being on, our, on this program this week. And, yeah, um, Zane, do you have any like final words you want to sort of say? Uh, keep it staunch. Um, yeah, it was really good to hear from uh, Marcus Knoll and uh, Sue Bolton and Lynn Muir today. Uh, I quite enjoyed having a yarn to all three of those people. Yeah, well, I think yeah, it's been a great program. And, yep, yeah, um, stay tuned for, I think, Earth Matters is going to be following after this. And, yep, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855am. You. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from your slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right. The commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.